When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if you are new listening to the podcast, welcome. Uh, If you like what you hear after this, make sure to subscribe. We do new episodes every Monday. But if you've been around for a while, make sure to hit us up on Instagram and Facebook. That's where you can tell us who you want to listen to next. And you can kind of see what's coming up uh, down the road in terms of uh, what artists we're going to be looking at. But finally, if you would consider yourself a um a connoisseur a uh, you you listen to music like you drink fine wine then you need to become a patron you need to go to the link uh, in the our des- description of the episodes there you'll find a link follow all the instructions on that and that gives you special access to episodes early as well as access to our special after hours episodes which we sadly we won't be able to do today because uh of uh the set list today but most of the times we make uh a set list of the worst songs of the artists that we're listening to and we kind of give those a a nice little critique as well but lucas we have hit some crazy milestones this week yes we have this has been a uh an all-around just big week um the first and most important being that we hit that 100,000 yeah yeah play, six digits such a such a big deal to me um of just again i've i say it just about every episode but it's a number that i didn't ever conceive of being possible is it weird that uh, oh, like 100,000 people have heard your voice yeah or at least um 10,000 people have listened to us 10 times each. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of One listens. Of, either way, I, I'm good with both of those. <laughs> um, and yeah, this is... Or this one is person really... has listened to us 100,000 times. Oh, hope... Well, <laughs> I'm going to hope not. <laughs> and and all of, uh, all of our comments and reviews are just different accounts of the same person to keep having to create a new account to your mom yeah hey mom mom, your mom is has listened to our podcast a hundred thousand times you know that's what mom was for (laughs) um but yeah so kind of the next guess if i were to come up with the next number that i just i don't know if it's possible and i can kind of have that be like the the pipe dream Dude, number, seven, well, I guess, bro. A million. Seven digits. We're coming for yeah. you. 
Because, you know, it's like at this point, I was just like, well, I feel like, you know, maybe 200, 300. But like if 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 a million were to happen, that would just be like, no way. There's no way that that could happen. And that's what kind of, I guess, makes it fun is to just kind of see if the if the implausible becomes possible. But I will say with the episode momentum that we have, I mean, if we keep gaining momentum, the million's not looking True. too bad. Yeah, um, our Bruce Springsteen episode, which is at the time of this recording, the one that is out right now, um, has just become our best ever first week. So, you know, we are continuing to at least trend in the right direction, which is always awesome. And them records every week. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's great to not see that it's, you know, stalling or even God forbid going the other direction. Um, and which I mean, even if it did, as long as, you know, we continue to have fun doing this, we'll do it. Even if it just comes down to getting three listens a week. <laughs> It's, it would still be worth it to me because I'm learning so much and having so much fun researching and putting everything together. So, uh, But it is nice to see that we're continuing to grow every week. And um, I am really excited to continue to move forward in this music history subseries. We're finally back to like our favorite series. Yeah, we took a break in December, kind of switched gears and did a little 2020 review. But, you know, we're going to finally get back to this at the end of January 2021 and go back to our History of Music series. So, so for, the, for the people that, you know, it's been a month, you know, people forget. Can you, can you give us like the meta, like where are we at in the meta of our music history? So for those of you that are wondering what this even is, this is something that we do the last episode of every month where instead of talking about a particular artist, we've been moving pretty uh, meticulously through the history of music and just kind of looking and seeing how uh, music has evolved and changed, kind of getting some contextual uh, background to all of the things that we take for granted in music these days, you know, learning where, where did we get the ideas for uh, melodic phrasing and uh, our scales and the idea of, you know, the way that our lyrics and just kind of all of the, the components that make up a modern song kind of just kind of looking back. And I think that once you, start to examine the history of music and you see where everything came from and how everything got its start and why that it really does bring a new volume of understanding to not only the music we're talking but all the music that we continue to listen to so when we started we started i mean as as far back as you can get with uh ancient egyptian music uh grant got to be a part of that that was a pretty wild episode oh yeah um, and then um, Ethan got to jump right in on uh, our second one, so didn't take a lot of catching up to do in our Ancient Greece episode where we kind of, you know, moved past a little bit of just the the random hitting and plucking of instruments. <laughs> they didn't even write, they weren't even able to write their music? No, and if they did, we don't no longer have it. 
and uh you know with with the the greeks and the romans we have this um this musical experimentation the discovering of the science of music understanding you know why certain notes are consonant why other notes are dissonant um you know you've got pythagoras that is discovering the relationship between the ratios of music intervals you have in the roman times kind of this mixing of world cultures to start you know really bringing in this truly diverse sound and then you have the fall of the roman empire and what we call the dark ages where everything kind of takes a dramatic step backwards but really in a way it steps backwards and pivots towards the direction of our modern western music today you know the 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 pure fundamentals of all that our music is built upon was made during those times in the, uh, the time where the Catholic church was really reigning supreme and had a very tight grip on the music of that age. There was no secular music at that time. It was all religious and it all sounded exactly the same with the Gregorian chants, all vocal, all in Latin, uh, no harmonies, no multiple lines going at the same time it's all together all in unison you know very um very plain that's why it was called plain chant <laughs> and uh last week we got to the back half of the middle ages and kind of started to see the 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 moving forward of musical complexity we talked about how this is the point where music started to f- finally be written down uh especially written down in the notation that we are still using today even though of course some some no pun intended minor changes have happened along the way (laughs) and um still looking at the religious music of that time because that was the dominant form but this episode we're staying in that time period but we're going to take a look at what was going on in the secular music of the time, the music of what we will call the troubadours. And so that's kind of where That's probably a word that many of you guys have heard. And it sounds like one of those old medieval words, but maybe have no idea what it means. Well, we're going to learn tonight. Gosh, darn it. (laughs) Okay. That's a great way to open up. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to learn whether you like it or not. So that's that's how we're going to just dive right into this. So I'd like to, uh, and we'll get to this in the set list, but I guess maybe to kick it off, because the the religious songs from the High Middle Ages, I mean, we're talking like kind of Gregorian, like it's plain chant, but just more sophisticated, you mm-hmm. know? It's yeah. just voices still. And the first thing that you notice on the set list is like we kind of like already kind of came back to where we were with the Greeks, Mm -hmm. you know, and the Romans where it's just like we're getting a lot of melodic structure from instruments kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. um, There this is the point where obviously the Renaissance is the big turning point in Western civilization and history mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of things going on in the back half of the middle ages that really are important for setting the scene 
Um, there are um, a lot of changes going on in the um, in the economic lives, the religious lives, um, certainly, and you know whether or not they were they felt like they were going to live or die. This was maybe even though um, the back half of the Middle Ages was a time of moving forward. It was also one of the darkest periods of human history that we have um, that we have record of. There was a lot of terrible things going on. And we'll uh, I'll take the time a little bit just to kind of explain why because it all leads to a very logical conclusion that once the Renaissance comes into full swing, you see this movement of what we call humanism really taking shape where instead of kind of the go-to being the religious leaders and having God be the ultimate uh, authority on the way that man should live, it turns towards man himself. Man starts to become fascinated with human nature, um, starts to um, starts to deviate more from just the Catholic priest saying this is the way it is and that's good enough. You know, they start to look at the sciences. They start to look at and all that really exposed in the Renaissance. But there's some um, there's some very critical things that happen. I would say there's probably three really major ones, and I'll go over those real quick because it helps to really set the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one. Is what we call the the Great Paganism, or some people have referred to it as the Babylonian Captivity. Not to confuse the one that happened in the Bible, but this was this term was used to kind of coin the same idea. So, if you've listened to any of the previous episodes, you know that the Catholic Church had a very large amount of power over not just their own sphere and over the religious and spiritual lives of the normal people. But they pretty much dictated who was going to be king. The kings really answered to them. They, mm-hmm. they, The Pope was the actual ruler of the Western world, even though, yes, they each kingdom had their own kings, queens, and dignitaries. They pretty much all answered to the Pope. The Pope could have this immense power called excommunication, where not if a king or a queen or a nobleman did not adhere to what the pope said had to be done not only would they bar them from church attendance but could bar their entire province and pretty much deny them spiritual access and the um, refusal to accept forgiveness and confession and everything that pretty much by their description was necessary for eternal salvation so they had an, a massive amount of power. But soon that power really started to wither because the uh, – there's – I'm not going to go super into detail on dates and names. I'm just going to kind of give you guys the broad stroke. Mm-hmm. There was a, a pope that decided, you know what? I don't want to be in Rome anymore. I really like the southern country of France. It's, they've got a nice uh, wine country there. It's nice. The the weather's always pretty there. The landscape's pretty. We're going to just stay there. And so the, the Pope moved out of Rome 
and set up camp in Avignon, France. Well, because of this, this kind of left a power vacuum in Rome. And so the Cardinals decided, well, you know, not – and the problem is, is that whenever a pope dies, a new pope is elected. Because the papacy now moved to France, they were finding that all the cardinals and also the popes were tending to always be French. And France was really starting to um, butt heads with the Roman Catholic Church in general. Um, the French kings had a very um, bad habit of not doing anything the Pope said and constantly <laughs> getting excommunicated. And <laughs> it was it was constant drama. And so the kings definitely took advantage of the fact that the papacy now resided in their home country. And so they leveraged that to get the religious officials that they wanted into power. And of course, you know, the representatives from the other countries got very upset by this. And so they decided, well, you know what? The the Pope is supposed to be in Rome anyway. We're just going to elect a new one. And so there were two popes. Oh. <laughs> this created a lot of confusion because the rule was is that you have to obey the Pope at all costs. If you choose the wrong Pope, that could mean eternal damnation as well as, you know, torture and a painful death because of blasphemy but problem is is that people didn't know which one they're supposed to follow obviously the people in france were like well i guess we'll side with the french pope but then everywhere else is just like well we'll side with the italian pope the roman pope and so this caused a lot of fighting back and forth it, it didn't lead into anything like open warfare but this started to um weaken their influence over the people because they now saw this what was supposed to be a divine religious body squabbling amongst themselves and how long did this go on this went on for like 70 or 80 years wow a long time way longer than it should have because somewhere in that process a third pope came into the picture no uh-huh there were th at most there were three popes at one time and so, of course, this, this weakened the internal body of the Catholic Church. Then you have this little incident called the Hundred Years' War, which was a very long, drawn-out, uh, you know, one of the big jokes is how long was the Hundred Years' War? Anyone have a good guess? I'm going to say six or seven uh, months it was 116, if you're really counting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, 100 Years War sounds good. And um, this was a war mainly between England and France. And it was, it was never 100 years of constant, never-ending war. It always – there was always these stops and starts. You know, they might fight for 15 years and then – you know, have a truce for 10 years and then go back to war for 20 years. And it was it was about 116 if you add up the times of fighting and the times of truce in between. Um, it's during this time period that you have the uh, the story of Joan of Arc. So that's where she fits into the, the larger story of history. And... Of course, when you have a war that goes on for that long, pretty much the whole point of the war was um, over who had control of the French throne. 
because um, through a long series of events, the uh, the English king felt that he had a direct claim to the French throne because of some intermarrying between the two kingdoms in their past. And so he felt, well, I'm actually the rightful heir. I should be the king. And the French were like, no, we don't like you guys. And, of course, that started a, a huge old Um because of the constant war, the constant death, this also really um, had the people on edge at all times. You never knew if your village was going to be in the crossfire of the next battle. And so this also caused a lot of unrest, a lot of worry, and a lot of fear that the Catholic Church either was unable to quench or pretty much ignored because they were – this is at the same time of the papal schism. So hmm. in some ways they were busy with their own problems to do what they were supposed to do, which was, you know, bring peace and comfort and uh, illumination during these trying times. And then you have the Black Death on top of all that. The bubonic... During the Hundred Years War? Yes. The, the bubonic plague swept right in the middle of this. Wow. And that, I would say probably more than anything, really broke the people's faith in what the Catholic Church could do because that was who they looked for on why is this happening? How do we make this go away? You know, obviously, you know, there were some felt that this was the judgment of God that, um, of course, that the church was going to say was, you know, you all deserve this because you're sinful and you have unrepented sin and you have brought death upon all of us. Um other people started blaming the Jews because the Jews, for some reason, were not dying. And so they thought, well, obviously they're poisoning our wells. Let's round them up and slaughter them. Oh, boy. The, the Holocaust was not the first time that something like that had happened. Obviously, that was much more intense and in larger numbers, but you know there was a precedent for it. So, um, you know – they were looking towards them for healing. They were going, you know, please make this go away. And they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. And so all of that adds up to the church losing a lot of influence and a lot of power. And that is what I believe starts to show this, um, this reemergence of secular music and secular arts really, able to kind of make a new concerted effort is because the church was losing its power at this time. It would really start to lose its power once we get to the Renaissance, but um, you know, what happened during the Renaissance would not have happened if these things hadn't already shaken their mm -hmm. power. They hadn't lost it yet, but you could tell that it was weakening. So Despite the uh, the advances in technology, despite the advances in social um, order and hygiene, especially after the Black Death, a lot of changes were done. To so, you know, maybe we shouldn't just throw our wastes into the streets, and you know, a lot of a lot of medicine breakthroughs after that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, technology towards the end of this middle age period is when we have the uh, the printing press being invented which is really you could say an invention that was the turning point of the middle ages and the renaissance and yeah. uh we'll get more into that next 
time we do this series in the Renaissance. But all of these things add up to pretty much the underlying story being that the church is losing the once almighty power it had. They couldn't stop the new artistic movements that were coming in. They couldn't stop on, and they tried, trust me. But especially because the kings and the queens and the nobility were starting to push back, they were the ones that really hosted and encouraged these new artists, these troubadours, and that's where they played. They wouldn't just go out and play in the middle of the street, you know. That was a dangerous thing to do. So it's kind of like what we talked about, like with Beethoven, like that, the tradition of the nobility and the upper class inviting a composer in started in the high middle ages. Yeah. I mean, it's not completely in the same field yet. That would really start in the Renaissance, this idea of patronage, but yes, the, 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 the system really starts to make its place here rather than a artist having the ability to be contracted out to anyone that required their services rather these people were like permanent parts of a king or queen's court like that was their oh was that wherever the king and queen traveled whatever events they had going on they had to be there to provide the entertainment so it was kind of like you know it was a it was a permanent job not just a you know with patronage yes the you know for maybe two or three years they'll have one person but then you know whatever deal they come across it expires and then they can go off and write for someone else so um so yeah this again this is the same period as what's happening in our previous episode musically um i think also you can see that there is um, because there was some natural change in the church music as well that started to manifest itself in the secular Mm -hmm. music also and you start to have this this overlap where the overlap starts to become more and more rather than I mean if you listen to the um, the religious music of the of the high middle ages and the secular music they sound very different but there's still some underlying key things that they're sharing mainly this um, this very intense degree of polyphony which mm-hmm. you don't remember us talking about that last time that is the technique of having more than one melodic idea moving at the same time they're not necessarily harmonious with each other it, they're not you don't have two people singing in unison but po- singing different melodies but having them you know be complementary to each other rather usually they're two or more very distinct individual melodies that just happen to be kind of copied and pasted on top of each other mm-hmm. so um and we'll we'll really see that in some of the songs that we're talking about but yes we do have the the return of instruments because of the uh, the non-religious nature and the non-religious setting that these were performed in there's a lot more freedom on what they could do what they could write about how they could play it who could play it we have female not just performers but composers during this time wow and uh you know it's kind of like you know anything goes 
So I have a songwriting question. So since um, since all of these kind of musicians and songwriters and composers were hired in like full time positions for like a Duke or whatever, like were they just kind of free to write whatever they wanted as long as they were performing all the time? Um, I mean, obviously, even though, yes, they were free from the constraint of writing religious music, um, there, there still had to be a, a classiness. Like they couldn't just, you know, write random smut or, you know, be, obviously they couldn't write anything offensive to whatever party they were performing for. Usually the so we didn't get like an anti-establishment. No, like, there was no rebellious. There was no um, writing about, you know, I guess what you would call the philosophical songs that we would have now. We don't, um, you know, they're not they're not Bob Dylan yet, where you know yeah. they're they're writing about the uh, the experience. Man, most of these songs are love songs, and specifically, they are what we would call courtly love. Where it's it's very much a gentlemanly um, courtship, so it's mm. not you know it's not lascivious, it's not you know lustful, it's not you know it's not your it's not your hair metal type lyrics of yeah baby come on over tonight and we'll have a good time. This isn't a you shook me all night. No, long. yeah, it's not like that. <laughs> it's very proper it's very gentlemanly yet yeah. at the same time there is some real emotion there as well as some real heartache you know, these mm-hmm. not all of these songs are you know everything is awesome you know i i love you the sun is shining everything's going to be all right you know these some of these songs are heartbreak songs Yeah, our first heartbreak mm-hmm. songs. You you have to you guys have to understand these are these are the first love songs in history. As far as we know. It sets the precedent. Yeah, we know. As far as we know. Uh, yeah. probably not as much of a blanket statement for that, but it's it's the it's the right <laughs> idea. So uh so yeah, we've we've also got music that is being written and performed in the native language of the time we're mostly going to be looking at um uh songs from the french area that's what that's troubadour is a french word mm-hmm. it pretty much means traveling performer it's these mm-hmm. were these were the first touring musicians and so you know they traveled wherever their lords and lands traveled and Sometimes they decided, hey, we're going to go on the run. And especially there were times where they were forced to go on the run because of the Catholic Church. Mm. There were, uh, this needs to be a Netflix mm. original There were several, there several times where the hit was put out. Uh, if you see these guys, get them. I need to write a TV script for this. <laughs> <laughs> Troubadours. Now streaming on Netflix. Dude, no joke. That'd be a fun show. So, um... Wait, was, could the church put out a hit on something? Oh, yeah. That's what the Inquisitions were. Yeah, but, like, could the nobility not, like, just... 
save them? Like they're already employed. If they're employed by like a a duke or a duchess or, a, or an earl or a king, couldn't the king just be like, "You're fine"? Well, it's it's that whole thing of excommunication that was. I guess then it's like it gets political yep. though. Because, like, what are you going to do? Like, sick your guards on the Inquisition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... It almost seems like a, oh, you're, I'm just going to keep you from going to church. That seems like something's just like, well, who cares if, you know... Yeah, but back then, then like, was church was the gateway be, to heaven. Especially because, again, just this was still before a time where no one had Bibles except for the church. And even if you had it, you had to be very highly in privileged education to be able to read it because it's in life. And to be fair, the the people also still highly value uh, church. Yeah. And so if a king if a king was just gonna say f you, you can't do it. it I say yeah. The, church, again, not just, the pope's word could start a revolt. Yeah, it's not just the king; it's it's his entire jurisdiction is yeah. is barred entrance to. Uh, the church and for the peasant for the common folk that literally the church is probably the only good thing they have going in a life of hard backbreaking work the only consolation prize they have in their minds is well at least i'll get to go to heaven when i die to have that mm-hmm. taken away from them because a king is not playing fair with the pope that was i mean yeah it's it's a very big deal the more I more I learned about it, the more I thought about it. I was just like, that's not just a uh, you know slap on the wrist. You can't come to church. That's that has very serious, you know, nationwide consequences. And so, you know, it was all. But at the same time, this is this is a period where more and more um, the kings of these different uh, regions were kind of testing to see what could they get away with. How? Because they they all yearned to be free of the domineering power that the church had, and you know more and more, especially the French kings, were really you know trying to see what they could do to remove their influence from them. So all all of it really it does make for a very interesting dramatic scene. Hmm. Yeah, but um, most of the songs, I actually, again, this was not intentional, but just from what all the best records are, France was really where most of this music was happening. It's not. I'm hmm. finding that it's not until the Renaissance that we start to have more um, nations and influences really coming to the scene. So is there is there a reason for that do you think? Well, I mean, you know, I think first off it it I think that France was one of the richer besides Rome uh where the papal seat actually sat. Um France was really the big kingdom of this time. They mm. uh had the most land, they had the most power. Uh, really, in a lot of ways, they had a lot of control and leverage over the nations around them. It's a big reason why them and England were always going at it. And um, I just think that they had a lot more 
opportunity for you'll find, especially when we get to the Renaissance, that the reason why Italy all of a sudden exploded first with this Renaissance idea was because they at that time became the richest nation in Europe. Because when you have lots of money, you can spend it on stuff like arts. Mm-hmm. You know, all that stuff takes money. And mm-hmm. at during the high Middle Ages, France was that nation. And then it switches to Italy once we get to the Renaissance. And we'll explain why when we do that episode. Mm-hmm. But these songs are actually not in French. Rather, a strange variation of French that I had never heard of before and still don't quite understand what it is. I, I, I looked it up and I was just like, I actually still don't know what this language is, who speaks it, where they speak it. But it's called Occitan? Occitan? I'm going to, this is going to be the beginning of us butchering names and titles. This <laughs> is going to be rough in that aspect as we really struggle to name these songs and these artists um but if any of you are uh expert historians in medieval france and know how to properly say that or what it is you can let us know (laughs) but (laughs) that i was surprised by pretty much uh except for um the return of our good old friend michaud that yeah. his oh. his are written in 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 French, but um, everyone else I found was consistently written in this Occitan or Occitan. I I really apologize for anyone that's just like this is the worst pronunciation of that word I've ever heard. We're from Oklahoma, guys. We can only do so much. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So that's uh, that's pretty much setting the the scene mm-hmm. so, now is there anything else that you, you guys want to touch on did you you mentioned that most of these composers were paid by you know royal dignitaries or might be someone with lots of money but i mean obviously today there are plenty of musicians who treat music as a hobby was that a thing at all no okay um, there were, so how did they get so good at all their There instruments? wasn't like common folk music. There wasn't. Again, a lot of this music was played for the high nobility. Okay. Um, the, the, the kind of the running joke is that 90% of Europe, even when the Renaissance came, didn't know what happened because nothing <laughs> about their lives changed. Mm-hmm. You know, not only could people not read, they had nothing to read on. There was nothing available for them to to read. Uh, mm. There was no people didn't go to school. You only went to school if you were rich back then, and not just college, like any kind of school. Most people, like the only learning you have is how to do your job on in the field, or how to how to do your craft better. That was that was the only schooling they ever had. And so, you know, there was that, and that's where music would be learned is in some kind of formal education. It wasn't just something that, because there were, there were also no books to learn music out of. You couldn't just go to the store and get a music book and self-teach yourself. You couldn't go to the local shop and just buy an instrument. 
Mm. You had to be in the right environment, and that was an environment for a privileged few. So talking about instruments, you did um, mention that we have a return to instrumentation as opposed to our previous two episodes where it was all vocal. Yes. Um, Are any of the instruments recognizable today like what i guess kind of like what specific instrumentation are we kind of looking at um i mean pretty much everything that we're looking at are primitive versions of a lot of the stuff that still existed in in the greek time being used there's there's not a whole lot of innovation happening yet it's when we get to the the renaissance again is kind of where things really start to um unfold so this this is kind of like a prequel episode really yeah and this is this is definitely just something to kind of set the stage for the really big um turning point which is going to be the next episode but it's something that i still felt was necessary in order for us to talk about because i mean the emergence of the first secular music in the modern western world i felt was um important enough to make sure that we pay attention to because if not we get to the the renaissance and all of a sudden you know everything has changed why so if school and learning instruments was only for the rich but all secular music so all secular music had to have been played by like rich kids and rich like learned young adults but why would a young adult like choose to like almost like proactively go against like what the religious leaders wanted like wouldn't they know that that would be like a huge risk yeah and i think that that was again it's it's all leading around this this general attitude of this this declining faith in the the church if you didn't have these other things that were going on that was shaking the faith of the the people's faith in the church, I think that you would have a much different story. I think it's the reason why it took this long because, again, think about it. This is still about 700 years of no secular mm-hmm. music at all. And now you have these world events that the church is either unable or unwilling to help and deal with. And so, yes, it is dangerous, but it's, you almost feel like there's this there's this attitude of we need to do something. We need to we need to start creating our own way of doing things because, um, you know, there's this there's this feeling of a new a new well, age is coming soon. The faith in the church, like probably a lot of people are just like, I want to write. And other people would be like, well, that's against the church. And they're like, well, I'm not really into that. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think that there's the church lost a lot. Yes. Again, this it's all leading towards the explosion of humanism in, um, in the right. Renaissance. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I'm ready to dive into these songs, which I'm so excited because we have like legit like lyrics that aren't just bible verses you know (laughs) yeah this is this this is actual poetry you would you would really say that you know the the troubadours and this this is i guess something i should clarify 
usually the troubadours were not the performers. The troubadours mm. themselves, the, the composers wrote, and they you had designated people that would perform and sing. And the troubadours, it was almost like they were the troop master. And they had, they were like, you know, the songwriter, and he had his, his performers along with him. Mm. So, now, of course, there were, there were performers that did perform their own material, but that isn't, I'll, I'll just clarify that that's not a guaranteed. That's not something to just assume. So, um, my final question, I think, before I'm good is how were these songs passed down? Were they like orally transmitted for so many years? No, so these, so these were or... written down. Okay. Still, though, the um, they were not as, again, probably because of the nature and the um, the inherent perhaps danger of them. They were not as meticulously well kept as a lot of the Gregorian chants were. A great amount of the Gregorian chants, even from seven and eight hundred AD are well preserved today because they mm-hmm. existed in an institution that prided itself in preserving them. Um a lot of these works are incomplete and missing. Mm-hmm. Um and some of the cases of some of the artists we'll talk about later. Um this song is only one or two of any existing works by them. So, so it was like the ones that we have today were never filtered out by their popularity. It's just we have them today because those are the only ones that Yeah, it, it's, this this became so-and-so's defining piece of work because it's the only one we have. <laughs> okay. And th- there wasn't there wasn't that at the time. There wasn't like a there wasn't like a pop hits sort of equivalent. No. You wouldn't have your troubadour entourage performing something that was written by someone else no um and again also just the fact that we're still a a small bit away from um from mass producing music we Mm -hmm. have um we have artists that are not really becoming famous in their lifetimes it's kind of more um, after the fact because there was not really a way for their reputation and their music to reach far beyond where they were centered in. Uh-huh. So, you know, someone like Michaud, who the one of the biggest reasons why he is considered the greatest of his time is because he's got the largest amount of work that survived. We have more <laughs> of his music than anyone else of that time period. And so it obviously helped us to understand him more completely as an artist and as a songwriter. And also, you know, he did have a compositional edge, but it could be that other artists had a similar com- uh, compositional edge. We just don't have the proof of it. Why didn't Michelle get excommunicated or whatever? He was able to kind of play both sides. He was... Um, he kind of worked fly by night. So he was, he was able to, cause again, you don't, 
you don't have to assume that uh, he's performing what he's writing. So he doesn't have to put his face in front of Kings to kind of say, you know, hey, this mm-hmm. is my song. But he does have the sheet of paper with it. And so he can send his guys out there to go perform for yeah. him. He can kind of keep down low and still do his church thing. But we do have the uh, the uh, documentation that yes, he did mm. write these songs. So, uh, but this is this is kind of the the last period of time where we have such a clandestine, you know, keep it in the dark musical movement. After that, it's going to kind of start to really blur the lines of what's sacred and what's secular. So really, we're studying the underground. Scene <laughs> yes, right this now. is the underground movie. In, indie artist, indie, even though it's indie high middle ages artists performed for the. Yeah, even though it's pre- being performed for the kings and the nobility, it still was not completely m- put in the public. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and take a break. When we come back. We're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked to uh, represent the high Middle Ages secular music. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode of the Good Music Podcast is brought to you by Southern Safe Rooms. When severe weather threatens, you want the maximum protection for you and those you love. If an intruder forces their way into your home, you need a secure space for you and your family to take shelter in order to stay safe. If you want a secure place to store your guns, guitars, or other valuables like drums, a custom shelter is the solution you need. Southern Safe Rooms builds custom certified safe rooms that can be installed in your home, garage, workshop, or anywhere you have a concrete reinforced slab. Southern Safe Rooms builds all of our safe rooms in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and can install them on any reinforced concrete slab. The Southern Safe Rooms custom storm shelters can withstand wind speeds of up to 250 miles per hour. Southern Safe Rooms have been tested by Texas Tech University and are built to exceed FEMA standards to withstand an EF5 tornado. The Southern Certified Safe Room is constructed with the highest quality materials, far exceeding conventional storm shelter construction. With over 110 years, count them, of steel manufacturing experience, Southern Safe Rooms knows how to build a secure shelter for your home. Call 918 918- Five eight four three three seven one, or visit our website southernsaferooms.com Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We have started talking about the secular music of the high middle ages and now it's time to talk about the six specific songs that we have selected for this episode. So for those of you who are new, Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to this wonderful spinoff series in our History of Music series. Um, we're glad you can join us. And Lucas, could you explain to them what the purpose of this segment is? So in a normal episode, this, this isn't quite a normal episode. Uh, normally, this is the opportunity that we take to um, 
go more in depth with the artist, kind of give some more concrete examples and give you the best possible introduction to that artist. Obviously, this is not an artist. This is a time period. You could say a genre, although we do have quite a diversity of styles and songs here. Uh, pretty much this is just going to be the songs that are going to best represent the music and the time period that we have been explaining in the previous section. So um, each of these six songs are going to kind of helpfully picture of this time period, as well as I'm trying to pick songs and it's much harder to do in this time period, but um, you know, the idea is, is to pick songs that transition well off each other that have an emotional flow. And that hopefully by the end of the set, you have had a catharsis and emotional experience. And the way that you can listen to these songs is there is a description in the link of the episode or link in the description of the episode. And uh, you can go listen to not only the songs in this episode, but all the songs in our previous episodes as well. So make sure that you go check that out and we'll go ahead and get started. And so begins our horrible butchering of I think that we should just say song one, song two. Song one, song two. We'll we'll give it one go ahead and then for the rest of the time we'll just refer to it as song one, song two. So this first one is Ashantar Mirror. So query no Volria. Oh boy. Do we know what that means in in that language? Yeah. It means I will sing. That's a wow. All right. Okay. I think, I think it's saying more specifically, I will sing of that which I wouldn't have wanted to. I'm finding that most of these song titles just take the first line of the songs. So that's why I think that's probably saying the whole line. Uh, okay. It's very creative song titling. Just take the whatever the first sentence of the song is, that's the title of the song. That's why they're so long. But it's it's literally, it's been consistent with every single song is whatever the title is, that's the first line that they sing. Ooh, that's a weird songwriting trick, though. Like, I mean, I'm the... pretty sure a lot of the Gregorian chants did that, too. Yeah. Because, you know, you're it's it's less about making an artistic statement and more of just like, you know, like something like Bohemian Rhapsody. You'll never hear the words Bohemian I, Rhapsody. I if you... actually, I, we, nowadays, we title songs to have like a more, a more ambitious like meta meaning or we title it after something in the chorus. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an, indicator of like how songwriting has changed because nowadays we put the most important thing at the chorus and Mm -hmm. I feel like back then they put the most important thing at the beginning of the song because that happened that was happening in our in the church music as well where like they would say the the verse that was important was first you know Mm -hmm. or the statement that was important was first in the song and we don't really do that anymore that's true that's that's a I feel like that was like more of a songwriting mm-hmm. like mechanism back then, which I feel like like if they were teaching songwriting, it's like, all right, now remember you have to put the the most important thing in your song first. Well, well we're gonna find that get too much better because then they just start titling as we 
saw in our Beethoven episode, just titling Symphony Number no. Two, yeah. Symphony. Well, they didn't three. have lyrics. Yeah, but even the ones that do have lyrics, it's it's gonna be. Yeah. It's more not about a... the artist's repertoire than it is about the song. Yeah, I think it just it makes sense at this point to name songs by their first sentence because like everybody knows what the first lyric is of bohemian rhapsody right Mm -hmm. and so it's like if your royal you know employer i guess is like oh play this song it's easier to say play say the lyric right yeah is this the real life yeah play is this the real life and then it begins (laughs) is this the real life right because that's it's that's how everyone's going to remember it makes the first lyric yeah the more i'm thinking about it i was just like yeah that's that's very very possible and that's probably exactly what they were thinking of when they were Mm -hmm. doing i just i don't i hadn't made the connection yet until i was looking at it because I and then I remember I was just like, wait a minute! Every single one of these had the title is the first line, and so that just that hadn't registered in my mind yet until just now. Mm. Um, so this is one of our two songs in this set that was written by a female troubadour. Cool, which I I think that's pretty cool. Um, it's not completely. People don't completely know who this woman is uh contessa de dia that is more of a stage name a pen name Mm -hmm. again i'm probably also specifically because she was a woman and you know liberties were not as um as graceful as they are even you know 200 years later um, as well as I'm sure, you know, there's some intentional subterfuge to kind of hide away because she was a noble woman, or at least people think she was. The, the the multiple theories that I've seen people suggesting of who she was, all of them don't deny the fact that she was probably someone of high stature and someone that was well known. In fact, um, one of the theories is that she might be a woman named Beatrice who had a ongoing affair with the composer of our third song. Oh, that's Ooh. funny and because those that, are my that, two favorite songs. That song is name drops her and is about her. But again, we don't completely know if it was her. The one thing we do know is that whoever uh Comtesse de Die is. This is the only surviving work that has music accompanied with it. We have about six of her poems. This is the only one of those six that had any surviving music to match along with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even then, I was reading that there's a lot of debate on how that music should be interpreted. Mm-hmm. So what's the song about? So this song is kind of a love song, kind of. This is this is this is something that Taylor Swift would write because it's a love song. Yet at the same time, it's a "I'm better than you" song. She is writing to a lover that it seems has betrayed her and scorned her, 
But at the same time, she's being very polite to him and she's complimenting him all through the song. She's telling him um, the great goodness that dwells in your heart and the value you have worries me. Um, I am amazed. But yeah, then she says, I am amazed at how your heart shows conceit towards me and I have reasons to suffer. But yet she's saying, and I mean, you know, that first line, I will sing of that which I wouldn't have wanted to, for I love him more than I love anybody else. So thus I've been deceived and betrayed as if, as I should be if I was unpleasant. So she's pretty much saying, I didn't do anything to deserve the way that you've treated me. You're treating me as if I was a terrible person to you. And she actually spends quite a bit of time explaining, I am not a terrible person. I'm awesome. <laughs> my value and my birth and my beauty and my most perfect courage must merit me some worth. This is like a Beyonce song. Yeah. But the, 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 the kind of the twist that comes at the end is I want to know, my fine and sweet friend, why you are so cruel and so fierce towards me. I don't know if it's pride or bad intentions, but I want you to tell pretty much the whole song is actually not directed at him, but to a messenger. She's telling a messenger, go tell him all of this. She's saying, but I want you to tell him, messenger, that many people are damaged by too much pride. And so it could be that she's like um, giving him a false, like she's, you know, she's acknowledging you hurt me, but at the same time, she's kind of filling him with pride. And in her mind, she's thinking prideful people are destined for a fall. Maybe she's kind of, you know, taking a high road of saying, I'm not going to do anything against you, but I'm going to kind of let things work out for themselves. Because because you're going to be full of pride, you're, you know, you're going to be judged. This is know. kind of meta. I kind, kind of, of. Like I kind of like the the uh, well, not meta. Meta is not the right term, but it's like more intellectual. That's yeah. extremely sophisticated songwriting. Yeah, for what I would would not assume would be extremely sophisticated this time period. Mm-hmm. So she's pretty much. It's pretty much like a we were together, but you were a jerk to me. Why were you a jerk to me? And then tells and he's like, she's pretty much saying it doesn't really matter anyways. But tell tell him that like your pride will destroy you if you keep down on the way and that's it mm-hmm. that's that's that that was the very last line of the song wow so she's in the end she's saying like i'm just gonna forget about you kind of anyways it, well mm-hmm. not forget about you because she loves him but like she's letting go of him and kind of giving him a warning at the end of just almost even still trying to help him yeah so, um, and if you'll notice in these songs, there's there's not a lot of repetition. Like, there's not verses and choruses that you're. Yeah. The the songs move in a very linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah, there wasn't very many things to repeat. And like my ear wasn't latching on to any melodic really? stuff. Now, well, well, I was it, all over the place. I was I was hearing repeats, but I I couldn't like sing you back the melody. Like whenever she would go really high, I was like, "Oh, there's the high part," but like I was having trouble like sectionalizing. I guess uh, obviously I, I knew it was like sing flute, sing flute. You know, right? This uh, this one is is looping the melody, but it's the same melody over and over. It's just played yeah. differently each time. It's just a long melody. <laughs> the 
Like, I it's guess not, the it's thing not, I was, uh, like, I'm going to go sing that. Like it's very cat. It's not very catchy. <laughs> I guess the thing I was, I was getting at more is that there's no repeated words. Oh yeah. There's, so there, you know, like there's, really not, like there's not a, a chorus song. that she goes to, to, that has the same lyrics or, you know, re- let's repeat the first verse or, you know, nothing like that to where we're, you know, really modern songwriting. So yeah, let's 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 look at the music. What did you guys uh, pick up about it? I kind of immediately with um the first song wanted to kind of just throw you back into um instruments and just kind of something to really set us in the direction of this episode with the music. I I think that when I first listened to this song, I was like, wow we have progressed a lot like Mm -hmm. almost it sounds very cosmically in a very cosmic sense close to the music that we would listen to today and the fact that there's a very like strong melodic center even though it's like maybe not memorable right but there's still a driving melody there's like an implied chorus right there's a strong meter to it there's plenty of instruments um and then in the way that like the 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 instruments are also playing melody and not just like droning and doing whatever they're wanting to do, mm-hmm. you know, like the part where the flute and her voice would like play the same thing. Like there was like, and, and just going back and forth from like vocal melody to um, like kind of the flute melody, mm-hmm. like in the song, like almost like instrumental sections and vocal like verse sections mm-hmm. is, is sophisticated. Uh, like mm-hmm. the song, like song forms are taking, you know, taking shape. That's more like what we're doing nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, one thing also with some of these songs, everything you're going to hear is not what would be appearing in the notation. The, the, if you were to look at the original sheet music that was found for this song, you would see the vocal melody and the flute melody and that would be it. There is some embellishment um, in kind of adding some of the extra elements, but I feel like it's okay because, you know, it it, it gives some extra life to the songs. But if you're going to be very pure and go, is this being performed exactly as it was rec- originally performed, then no, because it wouldn't have the, the guitars and... Uh, some of the extra stuff, but the flute would definitely be there. That was kind of the um, the premier instrument and in what the sheet music revolves around. The modern interpretation decided to add correct instruments for that time, but not necessarily something that was written down for this song. Hope that didn't crush anyone's worldview. No. Not and that really. you'll, well, we're going to find that that's. Um, that's not completely uncommon for uh, several of the songs in this set. Well, I'll be sure to ask before uh, I go into my musical <laughs> dissection next for the next songs. <laughs> okay. But definitely the flute is what's kind of the, uh, the focus of this song. Mm-hmm. Now, there are songs where everything you are hearing is indeed what was originally envisioned just not every time i think the biggest takeaway here is even if that's the case like the sophistication of the songwriting is really impressive 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can definitely see where, even though, yes, it's, it's very important and impressive what the church was doing with their religious music at the time, they were really moving the idea of this these stacked musical ideas you know just this 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 pure ambition of how many things can we put together and make it work mm-hmm. um there's almost a um there's almost this this more subtle approach to just great songwriting that's being done here like that the um the religious music is like the the hoity-toity um pretentious music that is furthering the the real art of music and the troubadour music is just like we're just going to write great songs hmm. yeah it's awesome which i like that Well, was there anything else that uh, stood out to you guys on this song? I am ready for the next. Oh, Michelle, it's time to return to you once again. <laughs> I hope you guys really liked him the first time around. Day Machout. Day Machot. I If I called him Machot, then I'm mistaken because <laughs> I have learned over time that it is. I think you said that. Oh. I think you yeah, said you, Michelle. Yeah, you said Michelle. It was me who couldn't pronounce it right. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't remember. Um, yes, old Michelle. He's actually going to have two songs on this set. What a this guy. First. I mean, you know, you really can't ignore the fact that he was the most prolific uh, songwriter of this period. And um, he is just as influential in the realm of sacred songwriting as he is in secular because he was very much a poet at heart and you can really see that demonstrated in his his secular well we the musical style that we're talking about in this kind of um, performance is what's called a motet a motet still is um Vocal. There's actually there's no instruments in this um, in this composition, but there's still a large amount of sophistication. So the first thing I'm going to kind of see is, do you guys notice any similarity between this show and the show of the of the religious music? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh. And do you like that or not? Because <laughs> I'm. You, you guys were kind of like I we understand where Michelle's coming from, but you liked the uh, the the offerings from the other composers a little more last time around. So I'm curious to know if you feel the same way, or if you're like, oh, he actually really does secular music really well. I go ahead. Yeah, I just I think that in our uh, religious music episode, he played around a little bit too much with accidentals and it didn't work to the level that our modern ears think but i think that he compositionally did better in this episode okay so 
Uh, I, I'll ask Ethan as well. Um, I hear similarities. I I guess everybody has like their thing. Like nobody else in. Well, I say nobody else. A lot of the other composers are relying, I guess, more on other instruments. Like right whenever uh, Michaud's um, things start, like they both start with like that same style of vocal, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're like only vocals, you know. <laughs> yeah, and that that open chord. And and I guess I. What I what I liked about uh, Comtessa and the third artist, especially like there's there's a musical arrangement with it, which again might be um, added in later for filler, you know. Mm-hmm. But I I just found my ear gravitating more melodically to the other to the other artists. I thought their melodies were better constructed. Same. I like, yeah, we have a lot of his music and that makes that very important because we can then have a a full complete profile on an entire composer up at that time. But I think now we've had for two episodes he's been in and he hasn't been notably good. Hmm. But I am curious to hear like what, what the song is about. Yes. Probably changed my perspective. So we have three voices. Um, Wait, that's I'm, only three. Though. Yeah, there's only three voices going on here. But you have, they're all kind of working in um, kind of in tandem with each other and mm-hmm. and weaving in and out of each other. You've got one voice that the high voice is really working overtime. really singing through much more words like if you break down the quantity of um of words and notes that are being worked through it's quite astounding in the short amount of time like this is like a very large poem and that's not even including the two other voices that are simultaneously being sung pretty much the whole thing is you've got three different perspectives that are arguing about the um the beauty of love and the importance of love you have um the top voice that's almost like excitedly rambling about how great love is like a hopeless romantic when I was first visited by love, he so very sweetly enamored my heart. A glance is what he gave me as a gift, and with amorous sentiments, he presented me with this delightful idea to hope to have grace and no rejections, but never in my whole life was boldness a gift he meant for me. Mm-hmm. You've got the middle voice that has m- much fewer words and is singing much more slowly saying love and perfect beauty fearing fainting are what consume me entirely and true desire has made me love you dear heart forever and ever with no diminishment of your honor as i would rather languish and perish if it pleases you than by my acts or thoughts injure your honor which i deem so precious 
So you've pretty much almost looks like you have two lovers talking to each other. Of this low voice that just says two words stretched out in these, if you remember our fancy word from mm-hmm. last time, melismas, mm-hmm. where you take a syllable and you stretch it to infinity. Um, if you look at what that's saying, it just says two words, very bitter. And it's, I don't quite know what to make of that. You've got this, you've got this very happy, um, uh, declaration of love between two people. And then you have this very bitter undertoning the whole thing. Is that like the voice of reality, like saying that, you know, this is a temporary love. Soon this love will grow to bitterness. Is it someone in the background that is cynical saying, you know, someone that doesn't believe in love? It's it's very um, puzzling. But I think that that fact that you again, you read through all the words and it's so beautiful. And so like like you feel good reading it. And then you just get to the very bottom and it just says very bitter and you're just like, oh, well, well what then, what does this mean? Yeah. It is an undercount. takes you out of it. The, it's having it as an undertone to the whole thing is what's kind of striking to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm curious to see if you guys have any uh, any hypotheses about that? Well, if Dave Michaud doesn't write that good of music, maybe he doesn't write that good of lyrics. No, I'm kidding. Um, God. <laughs> I think, I don't know. I mean, obviously it's probably, I think it's the cynical nature of it. Of like, oh, this is uncomfortable for anyone else listening to like like these two lovers are making the world uncomfortable for everybody else because they're so engrossed in each other that they are I mean you like I don't know that's I'm gonna stop rambling Ethan what do you think I don't know I feel like it's almost like a like a I don't. It's hard. I, I think I agree with Lucas in that, like having the bitterness undertone, almost being like that the relationship will turn to bitterness, or that again, if I if I had the lyrics in front of me, I might be able to come to. But Lucas, is it like happiness all the time, like the whole time from the top two lines? Yeah, I mean the 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 other two. Wait, hold on. I'm looking at it. So pretty much the 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 top voice ends with this line, what great madness this love is which turns a sweet song into a bitter one. Oh. So there's that's even more confusing now, but at least there's so maybe this is this is these are words unsaid or maybe these are words about like maybe we shouldn't look at it as 
maybe we shouldn't look at this as two lovers talking to each other. We should look at this as one person talking about someone else. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. And the bitterness that comes with, like, having feelings for someone that doesn't reciprocate, potentially. Oh, yeah. wow. This this could this could be all voices within one mind. True. Because that that's sense. like you said. What was that last lyric? Um. What great madness this love is, which turns a sweet song into a bitter one. Yeah. So I think that's saying like this song would be sweet if, but like, why is the song not sweet? You mm-hmm. know, it's because none of the it's feelings like- are actually realized. It's like he's cursed. He's cursing himself for not having the courage to make his feelings known, or or he's cursing himself for even having those feelings in the first place. Maybe. Either way, I think it's fascinating. Um, just again, having this. I was just uh, you're reading it, and just again, you, you can you can almost go over a line like that and just go okay, because the majority of it is beaming, um, you know proud declaration of love and then you just get to the end and just very bitter and it's just that's it's almost like kind of stops you in your tracks a little bit just like oh oh okay hold on now i gotta re-examine this and see what's happening here again it's it's impressive literary work just to like we have kind of two songs in a row that have a more complex like emotion to it it's not just like this is a happy song this is a song about loving someone, you know, they, they have two emotions in them, you know, so you get more emotional complexity and, and so far this is two for two. I'm, I'm pretty impressed at the poetry. Mm -hmm. Really? You could say that probably the poetry is what's the main focus here. Mm -hmm. Now, I do think with someone like Michelle, there's a lot of attention to really executing some very complex musical ideas. Again, you you still it's not refined quite yet, but you just got you have the feeling that you're you're listening to someone that has a very brilliant musical mind that has just discovered so many new possibilities and ideas. And they're they're trying to figure out how do I fully take advantage of all these new musical ideas, and yet at the same time, you know, put something together that is comprehensible. If Dave Michelle had a producer, then <laughs> I'm being I know I'm being serious. If he I know. had a producer to be able to condense all of his ideas into something that obviously a producer with a modern leaning i think that the ideas that are in here and the complexity and the complex nature of the music that he writes the the music that would end up coming out of that duo would be probably really good but i mean dave michaud is not with us on earth anymore so that won't happen but but I mean, regardless of our opinions of him, there's he is without a doubt known as the greatest composer of this. And I think he earns the title. 
Yes. I mean, again, I think it really helps that we have so much of his work. But I think even so, like just the, the sheer volume of, of great songwriting he has, even if, say, maybe pound for pound every single thing isn't as strong as, say, a couple of others, just the average, I think, just really brings him up. Yeah. All right. Wow. Two for two on the on the poetry. Yeah. You guys so ready for song the, number three? Yeah. And so you said that this is the guy that we assume has some love fling with Comtessa Didia. Yes. Again, it all depends on whether or not she is who you think she is. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, still, Tation um, is not, you know, a very reliable thing at this point. As well as it seems like there were some intentional acts to conceal her identity. But um, Kalinda Maya, which thankfully I feel like this is one of the. Um, one of the easier titles to try and pronounce. It doesn't have this this completely foreign nature to mm-hmm. uh, the language of it, as well as it's short. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like one of the go-to standards of troubadour music. Like if like if you were to make a troubadour greatest hits album, this is kind of like a, a song that you would have to include. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it sounds like this was like on the on the chart top fifties. Yeah, this, this was this was yeah. a this was a song of the time. This is a song that we do have some record that um, several different um, composers did their own versions of. Whoa, the first oh, wow. cover songs. Yeah, this was kind of like this was like a standard that. Um, people had in their repertoire and was kind of like a go-to you know hit with the audience i have to know what it's about i must know so just like every other song uh kalenda maya means um may day calendar calendar may may day Mm -hmm. we actually don't know what may day is um, it's it's a a festival that historians are not quite sure what it could be um, representing, but it also really doesn't have that much tie into the main context of the story. It just it pops up in the first. It's line. the first two words, so it's the name of the song. Pretty much the whole first section of words is telling him that. No songs of birds or gladolious flowers or of my liking, O noble and merry lady, until I have a fleet messenger of your beautiful person to tell me of new pleasures love and joy are bringing. So again, we have another thing. I guess that was one of the common songwriting uh, methods was to have someone telling the song to a messenger saying, go tell my fair lady this. You again. You can kind of tell that there's a very properness, yeah, to it. It's not a you know, meet me behind, you know, 
behind the bushes over there and I'll I'm gonna about you. Yeah. It's very much a you know, it's very formal. I'm not I'm not gonna, you know, come knocking at your door. It's it's very I'm gonna send you mm-hmm. a very poetic letter in the mail. It doesn't get more old fashioned um chivalrous than that. Mm-hmm. And this is the age of chivalry. That was that was a um a process that was introduced during this time of a man of nobility and honor must be a gentleman. He must fight for the downtrodden and, you know, he must treat a woman with respect and all that. So you're definitely getting this feeling throughout all these songs that these are not, you know, these are not worldly sounding songs, even though, yes, they are secular. This is something that, you know, the the church of today would go, oh, so innocent. This is such a sweet song. It's not like that that filthy stuff that's on the pop radio. <laughs> like these are songs that like your grandparents would say, what a what a nice young man saying this message. There's no bad words in this or anything. Um so anyway, he's pretty much saying, you know, there's nothing I love in this world, not all the beauties of the natural wonders of the world, what I rather have than you. The 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 flowers of the field, the, the birds of the air, none of them are as beautiful as you. But it ends with kind of the, uh, the eye-raising thing. Let me crush and strike the jealous before I depart from here. What? Pretty much, I to I think he's saying just you know she's someone that um, has is so beautiful that obviously he's not the only one that is taken by her, mm-hmm. and he's saying that I will uh, I will drive away everyone else because I am jealous about you. All Ooh. right then, okay. And so I'm 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 continuing to look through and it seems really actually that the entire focus of the song is jealousy there's this this mm. this, this jealous uh, language is what keeps coming up more and more um, such one would see and listen to my loss who would be indebted to you for it as he looks at you and considers in his presumption for which my heart sighs. It's it's this idea of all these people look at him and and say, "Haha, you you know I'm better than you. I'll have her hand. I'm I have more money. I have, um, you know I'm I will have her hand, not you." And so you just you kind of mm-hmm. get feeling of he's he's almost despairing because he loves her so much yet he has such competition for her hand that he is being bested for her love he's you know bemoaning the fact that you know there are better more well-to-do men in her life than him but he's kind of just it's almost like this um have as much money as them but i would love you more than they would yeah but here's here's a song yeah Mm -hmm. it's uh you know my my gift to you is my song and so then it comes the uh the the little name drops so 
So kindly blossoms shining above all noble Beatrice, and so kindly grows your valor. So that's where you you get the uh, the the Beatrice possibility of if if that is her, that that's who this song is about. Hmm. That's really really funny because I did my favorite songs were the first and the third, and they were for very different reasons. And it turns then. out they connected. Right, and it turns out that they're connected. Like the first one, I liked because there was like there was still that dynamic carryover from previous, you know, music history episodes that we had. And so I kind of like that. I kind of like the strong melody and whatever, but I really like the super, super strong meter in this third song. Mm-hmm. It felt, it felt like a folk song. It felt yeah. like a drinking song almost. It feels like something like, put here at a Renaissance fair. Exactly. Exactly. It feels like um, if you've ever seen tangled, like the snuggling duckling, Mm-hmm. place yeah it feels like they'd be singing that if you walk in and like i don't know i kind of like that feeling a lot of a lot of um songs that i that are kind of like guilty pleasure songs for me are songs that are easy to sing along to and just have really like like whiskey in the jar you know <laughs> yes. like the thin lizzie version and like the original irish version it's still pretty good, but it's just, it makes, it makes no sense. This song actually is a little bit more intellectual than whiskey in the jar, which is like, you know, that's kind of a given. There's a lot of songs that are more intellectual than whiskey in the jar, but um, I don't know. It kind of has this feeling of like everybody singing it together. And then also that's compounded as you get to like the minute four in the song and you hear like the claps and I'm like, Oh man, everybody's having a good time. Listen to this song. Yeah, I don't know. I it I felt like there was a lot of emotion in this one, and so I kind of liked that. Yeah. Uh, so this song, the uh, the words were original by oh gosh, the name uh, Rambo, 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 <laughs> Rambo de Vicarious. Let's go with that. Those the original words are from him, but kind of it's funny you bring up something like whiskey in the jar which was a traditional folk song Mm -hmm. this was this was a traditional folk melody and he put original words to it so he actually didn't come up and you 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 can feel that this melody almost kind of seems like it's like been passed down through the generations yeah it's Mm -hmm. very um universal sounding which is probably why everyone was so eager to do a cover of it Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, yeah, this like, is... Oh, I, knew, I, I know that song, you know. Like the song you hear in the street. It, yeah, and, and it's got just that swing to it, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Now, now that we've kind of talked about that, it, you know, it was kind of this big hit, um, it's, it's, I feel like it's pretty easy to see why. And we got that 6-8 time signature. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's what that swing is, I guess, technically. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Well. That was for Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little jazz reference there. Fifty seven. So Such a swing, good jazz reference. Fifty eight percent swing. Um, you guys have anything else on this one? 
Uh, ready to keep on trucking. I'm ready to keep right. going. So the next one, oh, I'm not even going to try to go through that whole title. Um, Marwell. Yeah, Day Marwell. <laughs> so this is the fourth song of the set. This one also was not originally written by the troubadour that put it to music. This is another one that was originally written by not just a female uh, writer, but three female writers all working together on one piece. Ah, collaboration. The unfortunate thing is that I was not able to find a full translation where um, I was able to to read word for word, rather just a loose summary of what the song is about. Mm -hmm. This is the one that I had the hardest time finding info about. Hmm. Uh, So what, what did you find at least? What I did find is that the whole song centers around um, multiple women, at least three women, and it's probably the the authors themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. the, for the most part of the song, it's two women kind of arguing about the validity of marriage and whether or not they should be married or whether they should go to a nunnery and and give themselves in marriage to the Lord instead. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, there's almost a satirical element to it, like talking about all of the, all of the physical tolls that marriage takes, takes you on, you know, just the, you know, your, your, your body grows outward and your eyes droop and, you know, just all what, all the things that make, um, that, take their toll on a married woman and so wouldn't it be just better to go be a nun and not have to endure all of the physical wear and tear of being married and having children and um then you have (laughs) this uh this other woman coming in this this woman called carenza which is where the part of the title comes from kind of this older woman just kind of almost mocking them and and again it's it's really kind of hard to see exactly what's going on but pretty much that's the the idea is that it's this it's this almost humorous take on you know women bickering about whether to get married or not but the the third woman that comes in in the end does she have an opinion um, it says she does. I'm I'm re-looking through my notes here. Um, I think she comes in as an example of a woman that was married, because I, it's looking like she has the physical descriptions of the things that they were saying they didn't want. Mm-hmm. I think that like she comes in almost like as a punchline. Like she comes in, it's just like, what are you guys? fussing about oh you guys are making such a hullabaloo what is it about and then she's like exactly what they described i think that that, that's what it's trying to get at Uh, like it's like i think this is there's no moral like even though she looked like that that she was still happy or something like that there's no more more moral to it it's just satire i think again 
I don't have a full translation or else I feel like I'd be able to answer that better. If she, if she had a thing just like, well, I don't care if if what I look like, I'm happy or whatever. I'm I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. Hey, I mean, people in the Middle Ages had a sense of humor, too, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, if if we had the actual text, I'm I'm sure we could dig in on the kind of scene if there was any philosophical underpinning to everything. But because we don't, we'll probably have to just focus a little bit more on the what's in this song. So, what did you guys pull from this? It's cool to hear like the reason behind like the two female voices. Because before I was like, usually whenever you're arranging, you don't put. I mean, there's a lot of like unison voices, I guess, in these arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it just makes sense now that you tell me that the song is about that. That uh, all these songs feel like more like storytelling and poems. Because before I was just like, well, there's not like a hook, you know. But I uh -huh. guess we haven't gotten there yet. Like, we haven't yeah. gotten to that point in musical history where, like, it's like, oh, the hook. Like, the part that they want me to know, you know? Yeah. It, it was interesting, though. They they kind of have that more, like, Middle Eastern vibe. Like, the way that mm -hmm. they're enunciating and singing. Oh, and I, I can hear it, yeah. I think that comes from the actual um, composer. Mm-hmm even though it is still in that uh, Akatan mm -hmm. language. Um, uh, Arnaud de Mariel. Uh, man, I'm just, I'm so terrible at saying these words. <laughs> um, he, the, I don't have a lot of information about him either, but the pictures I have do show him with uh, a darker tone of skin, which means maybe he was from the and maybe mm -hmm. he brought a musical influence into that. He he still he he grew up and lived in that province of France, but mm -hmm. who knows? Maybe he he had a heritage that he was pulling from that gave his music a little more um, exotic nature. Mm -hmm. Again. This this is worse. Even though we're getting more and more information about our artists and our songs, it's like we still have this bit of ambiguity that's happening. That still kind of makes, in some cases, the um, the the research and the explanation tricky. Yeah, but the good thing is that it is every time getting consistently easier as well as finding music is getting consistently easier um, it was but it's still fairly difficult like I already know with our renaissance music that it's going to be exponentially easier to figure out what songs are going to be um, part of the set with this, I still had to work quite a bit mm -hmm. to uh, to get the songs that I felt like would be well representative of the time period. Mm 
where I already I'm already, I'm only like two days into recording for the or researching for the Renaissance episode. And I'm just like I, I already know exactly what I want to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's just continuing to get easier. Yeah, which I'm happy about, and the music is continuing to get better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant, do you have any uh, takeaways from this song? This well, is kind of what we probably won't spend as much time on just because, again, right. we don't have the as much of the lyrical content to kind of dive into. My my biggest takeaway is I'm noticing something about your set building that your first three songs are often high energy songs, and then it goes down for the fourth one and builds from there. And I think that we've seen that with this set. And this one was very like low. This, the fourth song in this set was also very low energy, mm-hmm. but because there had to be a deviation from like our first song, kind of, it didn't build from anywhere, and so it felt like it was just, it was hanging around for the majority of the song. The other, the other thing is. This was the song that I was listening to, and I was I was in front of. I told you guys about this. I was in front of a um, keyboard, and I was trying to figure out the tuning. And I was like, "Well, it's somewhere between C sharp and C, and it's kind of tending towards C sharp." And I'm like, "Ooh, it's just beneath that. I wonder if it's like tuned to A four thirty two." And I checked that with a lot of the other songs. And it turns out that most of the songs on this list, which this is this is accurate, um, mo- most of the songs on this list are tuned slightly down from our modern tuning, and that's historically accurate. So mm. the people who were recording these songs knew what they were doing. We used to, as as Western music progressed, our tuning went from uh, A above middle C to being um, 432 hertz to 440 hertz. And so thing, music as a whole got brighter and it got higher. And there's a lot of purists who say, oh, we should go back to A432 because it sounds more, you know, full or complete or it makes instruments sound more resonant or it's more resonant to the voice or whatever. But I think that it just happened to be that, you know, the the – the musicians who would be able to pick up by ear would tune their instruments to everyone else's. And so it's just whatever note sounded like it should be the middle was what it was. And then somebody came along later and was just somewhat incorrect. And I don't know the full history on that, but it's, it was just something to note, I guess that there wasn't that science behind, um, like frequency that we had at that point. And yet there was still somewhat of a standard. There was no tuner, but there's still somewhat of a standard tuning. Yeah. I mean, it was probably all done by ear back then. Well, I mean, it had to be, but the fact that, you know, there were enough musicians with just absolute perfect pitch that could, you know, be able to tune their instruments that way. So. All right. Well, we could probably go ahead and move on to the next song. Um, non al suo amante. Maybe. That's now. 
this one is actually very interesting to me because this one is actually the a lot of these songs have been early ages or around 11 and 1200 this song actually comes in in the mid 1300s really things are really starting to change this is right in the middle of um, the roaring 1300s which is the decade that all those terrible things I mentioned in the first segment were happening. Black Death, Hundred Years War, Papal Schism, you know, we're, we're embroiled in the middle of that. But also during this time, you have the, the, the intellectual minds that really jump-started the Renaissance. The people that you could say kind of introduced the ideas that would lead to the Renaissance really started to um, emerge a big one of them being Dante. If you've heard of Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was, that was his time period. He wrote Dante's Inferno as kind of a critique on the Roman Catholic church. Mm. You got a lot of crap for that one. And you also have this guy named Petrarch who is actually the guy that came up with the term of the middle ages because he recognized that he felt that the Middle Ages were almost over. And he said, good riddance that they're almost over, because this is the worst uh, period of time in human history. Because he looked and idealized man and his um, accomplishments in the Greek and Roman days, and saw that that was the height of civilization. And then we are on the brink of a new civilization something that is less to do with what's going on now and more to do with the way things used to be. And that is a pre-Christian world in his mind. And so he's the one that kind of was the first to identify we're on the verge of something new here. And labeled what the time frame that they were just through as the time in the middle, the Middle Ages. And um, this song is actually based off of a poem that he had written. Mm. So the the words are from him, but the music coming from Mr. Baloney here. <laughs> Jacopo da Baloney. <laughs> Bologna, Bologna. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to try and apologize anymore because I think it's redundant at this point. Um, the This is so when you have that background of what Petrarch's thinking was, what his perspective was, and you have a – this is actually probably the most scandalous set of lyrics in any of these songs – saying no more did Diana and he's talking about the goddess Diana which again he's he's grabbing more towards ancient Greek mythology he's very entranced by it mm-hmm. no more did Diana please her lover when just by chance totally nude he saw her amidst the chilly waters then did the rustic mountain shepherdess please me when I gazed at her washing her snow white veil that's a one line yeah i'm gonna be honest but it sounds cool so 
the I think the kind of the underlying idea is that that and again this is this is leading towards what would become humanism that it's it's more beautiful to study man study God is the is a big idea of the Renaissance even though still a lot of the people weren't like actively you know atheistic or anti-god there was this there started to become this fascination this obsession with man and looking at man as being the measure of all things Hmm. that's why the renaissance art of the time was so fixated on exact perfect human anatomical um representation you know it's it's creating simultaneously the realistic idealistic man um, portraying man in his natural beauty, yet what a beauty it is. Mm-hmm. And this just this idea of this fascination of let's not focus our sight up above, but around us. And I think this idea of even taking the 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 parallelism of a of a beautiful God, Diana, I mean, obviously, you know, it's that's the inspiration for what would be Wonder Woman. Um you know, Diana was considered one of the most beautiful of all of the gods, and he's saying that she's got nothing on this random mountain shepherdess that I'm in love with. Hmm. And so I think you can definitely feel that there's this um, there is this move towards the humanism that will definitely really um obsess the minds of the renaissance thinkers mm-hmm. and so in that in that essence especially i think it was very helpful for me to kind of already be on the the track of looking at all of this renaissance information i kind of got to have a little bit of extra um, insight because i was just like oh this isn't just you know is what it is i now am starting to get a view of what's coming next and it's helped to me to kind of really get a better view of what came before so that was that was a lot to explain there what are you guys pulling from it ethan ethan i'll have you go first because i'm not pulling very much i i'm not pulling very much either (laughs) yeah i mean i think that uh petrarch was pretty aware of the fact where they were in history obviously and there's a lot of people who like to say you know even in our modern times like oh this is where history is headed you know and there's of course there's always the doom and gloom you know uh prophets or whatever they want to call themselves that say oh the world is going to end on this day and that ever happens right you obviously have those um but the fact that there was somebody who 500 years ago had the awareness to know that there was another major place in history that was going to happen is a little bit insane. And I was kind of taken aback by that when you, when you mentioned that. Because into those three medieval and modern, we're very close to being in history which is where we are and mm-hmm. 
some it's crazy by the way um petrarch did get to hear um this song that was based off of his work and he said that he liked it very much oh there you go we even, we even have Petrarch's comment on a song about him. Talk <laughs> about bookkeeping. <laughs> well, Petrarch was a writer. That was his thing to do. Sure. Sure. I I feel like, yeah, the, the closest we can get on this one is just, like, it's just such a different style of writing than the other ones. I feel mm. like this is almost instead of looking at it as high middle ages, it's almost like pre-Renaissance. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like him, like this style of writing, and we haven't done the Renaissance episode yet, but this feels like this is going to be more in vogue. Like, he's early to the party, where he's, he's like, this isn't as explicitly telling a story as the other ones, you know? There's, there's, Is it more poetic? There's a lot more poetry yeah, and a lot true. more insinuation and a lot more reference to old culture and a lot more um, um, embellishment, you know? Mm-hmm. And and Lucas might be able to pick up on it, but this this seems almost like lyrically ahead of the time. And more of like a shadow yeah. of what we're about to go into in the mid in the Renaissance period. Um, almost in a way that, like, he knows that stylistically everything's changing, and he's just on the top of the curve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I didn't pick up on that when I originally put this in the set. I just thought, oh, I, f- I feel like this song would fit well here. Mm-hmm. And kind of afterwards doing the research, especially really, I kind of started to really tap into what this song was trying to get across idea-wise in the last couple of days. Yeah. As I as I kind of, I, I felt like, just like, man, it's been a long time since I've looked at all of this info. I need to kind of do another um I need to do another run through, especially after everything I've now just learned. And this was the one I kind of came back to. I was just like, Oh, okay. I I feel like I have a much better um, handle on what's being said here. Now that I've, I've learned more about Petrarch and where the Renaissance really goes as far, not just in the sense of, you know, what the art is like and what the culture is like, but just like what the, what the people were thinking, mm-hmm. what the, what the common ethos was. And I felt like this was a song that I was, that was the most interesting to me as I revisited it after kind of looking ahead to the Renaissance. I, I, I do agree with you. I think that this is definitely this has a bit of a foot in both yeah. worlds where it's not quite yet at where the Renaissance is, but it's also very sophisticated and artful for the time that it's in. Mm-hmm. 
What, so, what were you picking up on it, Lucas? You were saying as you were looking at it and trying to figure out its meaning. Um, to me, I think that this is a um, a a this is this is our cue towards humanism that even the splendor of the gods has nothing on the normalness and the the simple beauty of the mortal. Mm-hmm. Pretty much him saying, I'll, I'll take random shepherdess in the mountains any day over the most beautiful of the goddesses. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something very... Um, or drawing comparison between humans and gods. Yes, I think that there's a very intentional statement of drawing a line there. I, I think I, I think there's I looked up the lyrics. Provocative. I looked up the lyrics and I thought that I think it's clever to say the sky burned but I shivered. Uh-huh. Like I think as far as in a in a poetic sense this is very um this is very advanced where the other ones are it's not the same type of yeah it's not the same poetry. kind of poetry it's yeah i but i really like this poetry that it's getting across here advanced poetry mm-hmm. advanced poetry again it's almost like just again the, the music is is a vehicle for these words i think that the the music when you really look at it it's just like there's not a whole lot interesting going on but i found once i understood the lyrics more i was just like that's what's really appealing to this song Mm -hmm. that's that's probably why it just didn't grab me as an english speaker i know it's hard for us to get it on the first pass because we don't speak this language right can't immediately hear and go oh i see what they're doing lyrically here we don't know we have to go out of our way to really figure out what's happening. Mm-hmm. But I would say that hard work and persistence pays off. Right. So so this is kind of like a, in the same spirit of that um, Sting song, Hung My Head, where it's like if you listen to just the music, it's really kind of boring. But paired with the fact that it's supporting a story – it's mm-hmm. the story that really matters. And so really kind of, we still do that today in music. Mm. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move to the last song then. My actual favorite song of the set. Un viper in quer de madame mente. Mente. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> you really threw yourself on the sword on that one. Uh-huh. Uh, this this will be the last time that we look at Michelle. So those of you that are Michelle haters, um, just you know, endure one more time with us and then head on. But I actually found that melodically, this song interested me the most. Hmm. I don't know why. It- I think certain... you just like it because it's an epic. It's a, it's seven, it's almost eight minutes. True, it is I an mean, epic. Yeah, it is an epic. But there was just there were certain melody lines that hit that I was just like, I really like that. I don't know, I don't. 
expect it, and then when it hits, it's just like that's satisfying to hear. Yeah, that's fair. Which, which I never asked you guys. I don't think if we had determined what your guys' favorite songs of the set were yet. I don't know. <laughs> I think after, well, none. Of them. I'll decide. I feel like we should we should start saying what our favorite song in the set was once we get to final thoughts. Ooh, yeah, because learning about the songs does change opinions sometimes. That's true. Save a little flavor. Uh, well, I guess we'll we'll do that consistently for all three of us next week since I already yeah. spilled the <laughs> so, um, so, what is the song about? Yes. So, um, this is another heartbreak song from Oma Show. It's it's always helpful for us to translate that first line of Viper dwells in my lady's heart. Ooh, oh dang. So, I mean that just Man. that tells Man, poor guy. Um a viper dwells in my lady's heart with which its tail stops up her ear, so that she may not hear my doleful complaint. For this to say no more, it always watches and listens, and in her mouth lies unsleeping the scorpion which stings my heart to death. A basilisk is in her sweet glance. These three have slain me, and may God preserve her. When weeping, I beg her to love me. Disdain will not allow her to wish to hear me. And if she believes my heart when it complains, in her mouth refusal does not sleep, but rather wounds me deeply in the heart. And her glance takes delight and pleasure. When it sees my heart, which melts and fries and burns, these three have slain me, and may God preserve her. Love, you know, that she has done me many wrongs, and that I am hers always, whether she will or no. But when you flee and loyalty weakens and pity does not, I see no better comfort than soon to die for in great distress. Disdain, refusal, glances which burn my heart. These three have slain me, and may God preserve her. That is poetry right there. Man, you know, it's interesting that he said that there's a basilisk in her. Because it's like, you don't hear that word very often. So it's almost like she... Because I think there's a line you said there, too, where it's like she takes delight in watching him suffer. Uh-huh. Yeah, like this, that would make sense. I, I just... I love the fact that it ends with that that same... Um, yeah, you get some Phrase repetition. Every time. Yeah. These yeah, three explain me and may God preserve her. Like, that's just... I, I feel like that this is such great poetry of, like, it's it's a different kind of poetry like than we were just describing, where it's a bit more philosophical. This is just, like, pure pain put on display man this is like some pure emotion pantera right here uh-huh you keep this love <laughs> yeah man i mean it just and it pulls no punches right from the very beginning from the word go there's a viper in her heart it definitely uh, does sound like Michaud and the fact that there's a lot of flowiness to everything. Yeah. And so I think that this one, he actually does a lot better than our second song, in my opinion. So 
yes, I am giving more evidence to your opinion of this being your favorite song. I'm agreeing with that. I Uh, think that lyrically and poetically, this song is the best one. Ooh. I, I... it's. I don't think it's. It's my favorite, but I think that this mm-hmm. song says the most. I, I think true. That this song conveys a lot. I would agree with that. Like this. Yeah, this is I, like. This is like something that like. And and I say this begrudgingly now, but like this is one of those things. Like if you were like in a high school English class, it would be like let's look at the literary work of this song. And everyone would be like, uh, but like, it this, would, it's like, this is almost whoa. Shakespearean. Yeah, it's, 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 it's worthy of, of, I guess, ana- like deeper analysis because it feels like there's so, like, he's saying so much. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. I, th- I think that, you know, you can say what you want about his compositional skills. But I think where his real true brilliance is his ability as a poet. That's, this this now makes more his sense. way with words. Seeing these lyrics makes sense now. Why he? Because I was always like, why does he dabble in secular music whenever it seems like he has such a sweet gig with church music, you know? <laughs> and it's because I feel like he has a lot to say. Yeah, <laughs> that he's he can't apparently say. all this in him. And he's just like, I got to get it out. Hmm. But I just, I love the, uh, just the, the somber, persistent tone here. And again, just when you read the lyrics, it starts to become much more clear why it is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, and I just, like I said, I really love the melodic component that's here. I feel like some of the, melodic phrasings catch me off guard but in a good way of just like oh man I really just like what he's doing here and yeah uh, this this also just felt to me like it's you know it's it's I like to have a good epic to close out a set but <laughs> it, it felt right for me to to kind of to end with this song mm-hmm. but yeah. you know you, and you're ending on a show piece. That's fitting. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was I kind of had that as my idea anyway. I just needed to find the right one. I listened to a lot of Michelle songs, and this one just this was one that that caught my ear the very first time that I heard it. I was like, ooh, because the earlier Michelle one is his most famous secular song, and so I was just like, well, I gotta have this one in here because this is kind of like the. Um, uh, the, the one that you have to have if you're going to talk about him. Mm-hmm. But then this was the one I heard. And I was just like, this one is just interesting. I need to, I need to get this into the set. Mm-hmm. You had a personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. Are we ever going to get a show like a full Michelle episode? Mm, I wouldn't be against, especially after lyrics like that. It's like, well, I'd be curious to see what else all he has to say. If he's, if he can pull out rhymes like that, rhymes like bars, (laughs) bars. (laughs) 
Michelle spitting bars, bro. Uh huh. Oh, this is a good set. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I feel these are more fun to do as we move further through time. Man, I cannot wait to get to the 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 seventeenth and eighteenth centuries and starting to get into opera and symphonies and that's gonna be very fun. But it's fun to see the it's almost like we're in the toddler phase of music right now. Mm-hmm. Like it's like we're just kind of now learning how to really talk and interact and you know and we're 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 discovering like it's like music in this area it's like it's discovering how to be music mm-hmm. you guys are going to be um pleasantly surprised with the way the music of the renaissance turns out Well, with that, I think that that's a great place to wrap up this segment of the episode. So uh, we're going to take another small break. And when we come back, we are going to give our final thoughts about the secular music of the high Middle Ages. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to our set list about the secular music from the High Middle Ages. Now, normally, I would go through and I would tell you song by song what we listen to, but all this is in a different language, and so I'm not going to do that. You'll have to go down into the description and go look at the songs in the Spotify link for yourself and listen to the set. Um, but now we are on to our last segment, uh, which is our final thoughts, which is where we just share, um, I guess, our final thoughts about um, this week will be about the high middle ages. So Grant, uh, after listening to the set, kind of give us, give us kind of your analysis on the high middle ages. Well, it's interesting that this is the first episode in our series where we have gone over the same period in history that we've done Mm -hmm. before but it's a different musical style. Yeah, completely. And yeah, yeah. Well, it's completely and lyrically too. And I and I'm curious to see as we go how that continues if it does or if it doesn't and why. And I'm curious to see how that translates to where we are today with, you know, especially in like worship music versus like secular music, you know, and and how that has translated or hasn't translated um and then obviously we're gonna get into different musical genres and the branching of different musical genres and for the most part um the music we listened to was either completely acapella or there was lyre and flute and drums and whatever Mm -hmm. And, and they were they all had different feels to them but for the most part they all had you know different different moods they're trying to convey but instrumentally everything was sort of similar and so to see the explosion of instruments i'm really excited for too um and we mentioned last segment that we're gonna select our favorite song and i think that even though i really enjoyed the lyrical explanation of our first song and that made me kind of like it more that there was a little bit more there than just a cool melody that i liked and cool dynamics um and that's another thing too is is the 
the more interesting lyrics and we're not just, you know, reciting a Bible verse, you know, and we have a story being told or an idea being told, which great lyrics are always something to be appreciated, even though that's not me as a listener personally, that's not what I listen to music for. Um, great lyrics are still something to be appreciated. And so that's another great development personally for me. Um, even though the first song of this set had great lyrics, I still think I have to select the third song just based on the feel of it and mm. the strong meter and the emotion of it. And the fact that, you know, we've had strong meter songs before. Um, I think there was one in our ancient Egypt episode that was, that had a, that had a very strong, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about right but it wasn't it wasn't the same kind of like thump sort of almost like driving bass kind of like pop like dance macabre kind of kind of bass drum it had that feel to it and i was like wow that's really cool and the emotion of it and you know obviously what the what the musicians who were trying to put this into a digital form were doing and how they did that very well that's also something because of course there are historians and musicians who are trying to translate this to Spotify as well. It's not the original artists, of course. And I think that just as a whole, that translated to a great musical experience. And so I can't deny that. And so that's why Kalenda Maya is my favorite. And because you can pronounce it. And because I can pronounce it. Well, I can, you can just say <laughs> Ashantar, you know, call it done, but yeah. I I actually have the exact same experience as Grant, but but like opposite, where yes. I came in with Kalinda Maya being my favorite and was convinced on Ashantar because of the lyrics. That is weird. Reversal. It, it, it's it's that's what I'm saying. It's like the same exact thing, but reverse. And I would say Kalinda Maya is my it's my second favorite. It's one of those, like, if we were ranking these, like, if there was a ranked playlist, I would be like, Kalinda Maya is probably ranked higher, but, like, the Ashantar, like, just speaks to me more, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I know that, like, Kalinda Maya, like, like, the guitar's in there, and it, like, it has, like, it's just, it's a feel-good song, you know? But after I figured out uh, Ashantar, I was just like, wow, that's deep. Like that's the mm -hmm. that's the song I'm gonna remember from the set. Like whenever it's like, hey, remember the high middle ages? I'm gonna be like, that's the one where that girl wrote that song, you know, about pride like killing her lover or whatever. Like I'll remember that story more than the Kalinda Maya story. But I would say like in terms of the high middle ages in general and I kind of touched on this in the last segment a little bit, like we're getting closer to modern songwriting form, you know, yeah. like we're, we're seeing now, especially I would say in Kalinda Maya, we, we really see um, like pretty much it's, it's like verse. It, it really feels like kind of like verse instrumental, verse instrumental, verse close, you know, and that's even how, um the uh that last song by Michelle like the uh my love has a viper in her heart you know 
like that's like just three verses you know so we're starting to see like instead of kind of a meandering melody we're starting to like see conciseness in the songwriting and i think that it's going to be interesting to see because pretty much all of these songs have like three verses right no some have more you know what i'm saying it's like it's it's structured though as like two verses or three verses or four verses in an instrumental and you know that's true it's going to be interesting to see like and i'm kind of keeping my eye on it because i thought we might get it in this but but it's like when is the even the idea of verse and chorus going to like hit you know like what if we have two melodies you know what if the song structure like what if we get like a main point across like I'm I'm interested to see when that kind of songwriting epiphany happens where it's like what if we just had like a looping melody of like only like a couple words cuz that's going to be a big deal like whenever whoever thinks of it thinks of it right but we're getting really close way closer here than the church music of the same generation was and so that that's my final thoughts well, I already spoiled earlier, but I what my favorite song was. But I really like. I feel like it it fits well here to kind of put our favorite songs. I think we should definitely do it this way in the future. You guys have persuaded me. Um, I have noticed a change within myself these last few weeks. I noticed it really on Bruce Springsteen. I have never cared for lyrics before. I always would say that lyrics are the last thing that I care about. I always listen to the music first. And depending on the artist, that can still be true. Mm-hmm. Finding that a good set of lyrics is is mattering to me more and more. Mm-hmm. I'm converting you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm finding that it's it's the songs that have really strong lyrics that are just like those are the ones that are hitting me the hardest i think that's why the final song resonated with me so much because it's like man these are the best lyrics of the set Mm -hmm. and yes melodically i i really enjoyed it as well but i don't think that that in of itself was would have put it over the top of something like say uh, the the two that you guys yeah. were mentioning is your favorites because those musically are probably the strongest ones. Mm-hmm. But just the lyrical content of the final song is yeah. is just enough for me to just really put it over the edge. And it's one where I'm just like I would just read that again. Yeah, it's packed. Uh huh. So, the Middle Ages, this time going through it, because I've, I've done a very surface-level um, skimming of music history before, and so I knew in very broad terms what to expect in the Middle Ages. I knew about the Gregorian chant. I knew about um, the polyphony, but I never really... I remember um, hearing some of it and just going, well, this sounds exactly like what I just 
listen to in you know the early middle ages it just sounds a little more busy that's it i don't get why we have to make this its own study and now coming back to it and and paying so much more attention to the nuance to really understanding what musical ideas are being introduced what um individual composers personal styles are and how that influences the way that they're writing their songs um i see so much more creativity and much more nuance than i did the first time around and i'm pretty happy about that um i'm it's making me just more and more excited to continue to go down this road of music history and so um that's that's all i got thank you guys so much for listening to this episode this is continues to be one of my favorite um one of my favorite parts of doing the podcast yeah having uh this this walk through music history mm-hmm. just combining two of my loves which is music and history to make music history <laughs> and um i just thank you guys so much for everything that you've done for us all of our patrons that support us on a monthly basis for helping us get to that big 100,000 listener count uh, here's to the next 100,000 and next week starts a brand new month which means we've got a brand new volume 2 and I think this is going to be one of the most fun volume twos we've ever done. So please make sure that you tune in next week, 9 a.m. Central for that episode. And uh, please go listen to these songs. Hopefully you will not hear us talk about these songs for two hours and not even go listen to them. That would be uh, very sad. The uh, link is in the description of the episode to go listen to them. So please make sure that you check it out. And um, also, if you want to become a patron, if you want to have not only uh, early but exclusive content, then there's a link in the description uh, or there's a link in the description of the episode. Sometimes that sentence trips me up. There's a link in the description of the episode to become a patron as well. And uh, if you want to give us a suggestion on what artist to cover next, please hit us up on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook, because I am dedicating myself to doing at least one uh, fan-suggested artist every month. So um, we are listening to what you guys have to say. And um, we want to cover the artists that you guys want to hear about, as well as the ones that we think that you should hear about. And my infinite wisdom that I say, you must know about this artist. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, uh, I was completely serious when I said that. Um, So with that, I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music.